Welcome to another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment, featuring interviews with guests who are having success in entertainment, primarily music. I am Bruce Wozniak, talking to guests who are singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, and more from the worldwide music community. Be sure you are on the list for the weekly e-newsletter. I know we put in our email address online somewhere because of some free something we want to get, and we know they're going to put us on their mailing list. And man, sometimes it just gets so annoying with how much that person then proceeds to overwhelm you with nonsense. I'm happy to report that I only send out on Wednesday when a new episode of this show comes out. So make sure you are signed up to receive that for free to your inbox. If you're not already getting it, go to my podcast website, nhte.net, and pop your email address into the sign-up box. I do publish exclusives in there from time to time, so don't miss out. I love hearing from listeners of this show. You can write to podcast at nhte.net, or instead of email, you are welcome to DM me through the at Now Hear This Entertainment Instagram account. As noted by its title, this is a unique, a special episode of the podcast. Every time that I have hit the next hundred plateau, I have stopped to do a best of episode to recap just some of the highlights of the last 100 gone by. This is a terrific opportunity for you to hear about some of the episodes you might have missed and make plans to go back and listen to them in their entirety, since on today's episode I'm going to give you just a snippet. So really keep something handy where you can jot down an episode number or two or ten, because mark my words, you're going to hear a cool clip and or a particular guest's name or their accolades and think, Wow, I never heard that episode. I got to go back and listen to that. But you're not going to notate it anywhere, and later you're going to wish that you did. I like to think of these best of episodes that I do as like a sampler platter, but this one is the biggest of the five, and I'm thinking of it as more of a huge buffet where your eyes end up bigger than your stomach. You're definitely going to be filled up with all that I'm packing into this episode. I have been so, so fortunate to have hundreds of really great guests. I wish that on an episode like this, I didn't have to leave anyone out. But if I pulled just one minute from each so that everyone would be represented, that's an episode more than an hour and a half long. And even if I cut it down to 30 seconds each to cut the running time in half, I think some really great stories that guests were telling would get chopped off and really leave you hanging. Another reason I like stopping every 100 episodes to reflect back on some of the great guests that you might not have heard is because I can take a little longer to thank everyone that listens. Yes, I say it every week and I write it in the weekly e-newsletter, but it honestly means so, so much to me to have people listening around the world every week to sustain this show for what is 500 episodes now. Hopefully you heard that milestone episode last week, by the way, but let me not get off track here. When I look and see where in the world, literally, people are listening to this show from. It just absolutely touches my heart. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I know that my episodes are not short, so thank you, truly, for sticking with me. Speaking of hitting that milestone last week, you might have seen the picture on the official Now Hear This Entertainment Instagram account that we had a cake for it at this month's Florida Podcasters Association meeting in Tampa, Florida. 
For those of you outside the area, at the end of every episode every week, I always invite you to show your support, your thanks for my work on this podcast. It's not too late for us to have a virtual toast to the occasion, raise our mugs, and I'm talking about heading to my podcast website, nhte.net, and tapping or clicking on the yellow Buy Me a Coffee logo and sending me a note of congratulations on the milestone. I appreciate the gesture to let me know that you like what I'm doing. You can also, by the way, just go directly to buymeacoffee.com slash Bruce W. And now let's get into this week's new episode, number 501, The Best Of, Volume 5. Oh, by the way, starting us off, that was a song called Atlantis from Asher Laub, NHTE, episode 459. Episode 402, the guest was Evie McKinney, the season one winner of Fox's The Four Battle for Stardom. Back then, October 2021, she had over 215,000 monthly listeners on Spotify, and her YouTube channel had a combined 7 million plus video views. And she talked about being mentored by Megan Trainer. Well, Megan, I want to say, is still my friend. And Megan, she just, she, we just became good friends. And uh, it's so funny because when I lived in California, I lived, my house was exactly five minutes away. You know how some people be like, I'm five minutes away, but they don't really be five minutes yeah, away. Yeah. Well, Megan Trainer's house was five minutes away from where I was staying. Mm. And so she would invite me over. We would have dinner. She was just the sweetest person and so talented. And I, out of all of the, out of all of the songwriters that I had worked with in California when I was signed to Republic Records, Megan Trainer was one of the very, very, very few that would bring me into the studio. And she would say, Evie, what do you want to talk about? Mm. It would give me complete freedom. And that's how we wrote Bring the Whole Hood. Because I told her, I said, well, this is my coming out moment. The world doesn't know me. So I think I need a song. I need an autobiographical song, a song about me, talking about me, where I come from. And she was all for it. And, man, she she just made it happen. She let me be myself. And that that spoke volumes as well because even now still to this day i all of the songs that you've heard from me i have written i have been a part of each and every one of my songs and it is because megan trainer she showed me that that's important don't let anybody write your song for you you need to be able to tell your own story nobody can tell your story the Mm. way that you can Two weeks later, on episode 404, I interviewed Justin Biltonen, the bass player for Three Doors Down. That NHTE episode was released November 3rd, 2021, and that September, he'd just had the latest release in his solo work, a single, come out. He drew upon his experience to share some very real advice for people who think it's just a matter of making it with a band that's going to hit national stardom, and then their career will be a success. Definitely get that out of your mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that goes for for anything. Like if someone's, you know, it's it's awesome to have, you know, the big dreams and aspirations. Of course, like everybody wants to be, you know, the next Luke Combs or Keith Urban, and they're, you know, filling up stadiums on your name. Yeah. But, um, 
know, like that, that's one in a million. And there's a million other aspects of the music industry that you can have a really successful career at. And the bottom line with any of that, like no matter what you're doing, if you're writing your own songs, if you're playing, like the number one thing is do you love your art and your passion for performing and writing music or do you love the idea of getting famous? Mm, wow. Which which things driving you? Because if it's the idea of getting famous, then nothing's ever going to add up to that. And nine times out of ten, you're going to end up giving up on it because you're going to be like, oh, the industry sucks. I'm not famous next year. Like, there's expectations and realistic goals that you can kind of put in place. But at the end of the day, it's got to be because you absolutely love what you're doing. The next week on episode 405, I talked with Bill Schnee, an internationally renowned producer, engineer, and mix master who has over 125 gold and platinum records and 50 top 20 singles. He has worked on dozens of Grammy-nominated and winning albums and has been personally nominated 11 times for the Best Engineered Album category, winning twice. He also has won an Emmy Award for Best Sound Mixing for a Variety Special and a Dove Award. So someone like him can come on a show like mine and tell a Michael Jackson story. One day Motown calls up, and this is uh, 1969, uh, I believe. Mm. Uh, Motown calls up and says, um, do you have this Thursday open? And I said, yeah, we have a lot of Thursdays open. Uh, but what do you want to do? And I said, well, we're we're going to do some background vocals with the Jacksons. Mm. And uh, so I said, oh, great. And uh, R&B is, I think, really that old school R&B, 60s and 70s, is really my favorite genre. I love all genres of music. I've been very fortunate to work in all areas. But I really love that. And I had bought their first record. And they were working on the second record. So there I was on Thursday, anxiously awaiting, and a green Econoline van pulled up with on the side written, The Jacksons, Gary, Indiana. And Papa Joe got out and opened it up, and uh, out the five boys popped. And so we went in the studio, and I got they brought their own engineer, a Motown engineer. And I went and got them set up with the headphones and made sure everything was going good. And then I went out in the foyer and hung out with Michael, who wasn't singing backgrounds. He had sung the lead. And so he's 10, going on 11, I think. Mm. And, uh, I, you know, he sat down. I just started talking. He was very animated, shuffling his feet and, you know, just kind of happy-go-lucky. And, and I said, you know, I, I bought your first record, and uh, I, th- I think it's great. <laughs> you know, and it's you know, you guys are going to, I think you guys are going to be huge stars. And, oh, oh, you know, he's just very nonchalant about everything. We're talking for the first 15 minutes. I finally said, Michael, do you know what's happening? And he said, not really. <laughs> and, uh, and I could believe it. He's just, you know, having yeah. fun. Yeah. He's just a little kid. So, um, so now go ahead, uh, 12 years. And, uh, the manager then of the Jacksons calls me and says, we're going to be doing a tour. This is right after Off the Wall. Mm. We're going to be doing a tour with the band and uh, want to record it, like you to record it. And I said, great. And so we talked about how to do it, and I, we decided to do it halfway through the tour when the band would be locked in. 
and do it in the Northeast because you have a recording truck, you know, a control room on wheels to uh, do the recording. And uh, that way the truck, the truck can get from one gig to the next because they're fairly close. Mm -hmm. And they sent me to Atlanta to see a show the first night. Mm. And so in the audience, so that's what I did and saw an incredible show and just blown away with, with Michael. Um, and the next morning, limo picked me up at the hotel and took me to the airport and they put me in a room that was reserved for them. And I walked in and the four of the brothers were sitting on the floor around each other on one side of the room. And on the other side of the room was Michael all by himself. Hmm. So naturally I picked, I picked out to go over and sit down, plop myself down next to Michael and shook his hand and said, hi, I'm Bill Snay. I'm going to be recording you guys. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I said, do you happen to remember, uh, you know, almost a dozen years ago, one day in a studio in Hollywood where and he didn't remember it. Mm -hmm. Uh, the older two boys did mm -hmm. when I talked to them later. And, um, uh, and I told him, you know, I said, we sat and, you know, chatted for quite a while. And, and, uh, and I asked you if you knew what was happening and you said, not really. And I, and you know, he kind of chuckled. And then I said, well, Michael, do you know what's happening now? <laughs> and he just gave me a, he gave me a very wry <laughs> smile and he did. I was at the Frank Brown International Songwriters Festival on the Alabama Florida border when I sat down with the girls from Chapel Heart in November 2021 for episode 408. By the way, they would end up being on America's Got Talent in 2022. The girls were very convicted and you hear their passion, their drive, their focus, their determination. In this clip where Tree starts off and then Danica supports her. I can't even remember how many times that like industry people have told us, oh, no, this would be career suicide. And it seems mm. like every time we do the thing that would have, quote unquote, been suicide, it kind of just gave us a whole new life. But like you said, and as is the name of our tour, follow your heart. It really doesn't matter there's always going to be great advice coming from everywhere, but I kind of feel like um, disrupting the status quo is about our, like, it's kind of like our MOA now. It's like, it's, it's just what we do. And it, and it's, it works because it's just us. <laughs> I think that also just like, you know, just to, it's Danica. And I think to just kind of just throw, I guess another pebble in, in the pond is just that, um, I think it's less about being like, you know, all oh, the rebel, but um, kind of like you, I think maybe where you were going initially was that never forget that you're an artist because whether you're on a label, whether you're an independent, whatever it is that's gotten you to this point is what got the attention of a label or is what got the attention of a manager or, um, uh, or if you're with a, or if you're with a um, booking agency, however you are furthering your career. What you did to get to that point, the material that you were writing to get to that point, everything about your artistry is what got you there. So I think it's super important, like you said, to know what to stand firm on. And there are some things that, you know, maybe you could bend on and go, OK, I'll just yeah, do that. Yeah. And um, so that's not ever a bad thing. But I think, like Dev said, trust in your gut is don't ever don't ever let that fire burn down so much that you lose your voice and the, the mayhem of everybody yeah, who yeah. has an opinion. When I was looking back through episodes 401 to 500, I saw 409 Chad Jeffers. That was December 8th, 2021. And the episode description started off with, he has been Carrie Underwood's guitar player for the last 14 years. 
But I looked at that and I immediately remembered a funny story he had told about Kenny Loggins, actually. So this I, I got a phone call and it was from a California number. And uh, one of my good friends I went to school with at Belmont, he also lives in California. He and I always prank each other. We've, we've always been doing that. And especially whenever someone doesn't answer the phone, we're like, hey, this is Paul McCartney. I was going to ask you to be in my band, but I guess you're too busy. You know, I mean, we always just, just you know, uh, joke with, we, with the, each other. And so um, I get this phone call from a California number, something, and it's him. His name's Danny. Hey, Danny, if you're listening. So he loves this story. <laughs> so Danny, I'm thinking, Danny's calling me. So I answer the phone and it's like, Hey, I'm uh, looking for, uh, uh, Chad Jeffers. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, this is Kenny, Kenny Loggins. I'm like, Danny. He goes, no, no, it's Kenny, Kenny Loggins. And I'm like, Danny. <laughs> and then I heard kind of the, the timbre of his voice. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's Kenny Loggins. He's calling me personally. And he said, uh, Hey, he goes, I know that you toured with Chris Rodriguez with Keith Urban. And, you know, Chris has been playing with, with uh, Kenny for, you know, since the 80s. And, you know, Kenny said, I mentioned him and I needed this slide guitar player. And Chris said, look no further than Chad. You need to call him right now. Wow. He said, so here I am calling you. Um, can you be in, in L.A. Uh, in a month and, you know, do rehearsals with us? And I was just like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so they sent me the music, and they sent me a set list of about, I don't know, 25 or 30 songs with priority. You know, like, hey, just learn it just straight down. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, you know, this is, you know, a new album that he had that had a lot of slide guitar. And then, of course, you got to learn, you know, his catalog of music, yeah. which is extensive. Um, and, and also there's different versions to each of the songs because he's, he's been playing them for decades. But, um, so I get to rehearsal, um, we're in Burbank, California, and, um, basically he has the whole band set up in somewhat of a horseshoe in terms of, you know, just the band. And then he's in the middle facing everybody. Uh And then he put me right in front of him. (laughs) And so I felt like I was in the hot seat, (laughs) (laughs) the hot seat of a lifetime here. And, and I've always heard stories about just how good Kenny's ears are, that he hears everything, you know, musically, and he knows the parts because, you know, he's, he produced a lot of his own music. And so I learned everything note by note meticulously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to make sure it was perfect. Mm-hmm. And so when he went to the set list, he goes, all right, let's, um, uh, let's see here. I don't know, let's turn around song 21. Wow. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, you said learn these in order. Yeah. I didn't say that, but I was yeah. thinking that. And so we played through the song and um after the song finished, there was that awkward silence, like nobody making a sound, nobody talking, and Kenny just kind of thinking, you know, and kinda of looking into space. And he said, All right, let's do it again. Hmm. But now I'm thinking, All right, am I like way off course? <laughs> Or is it is it really good? And so after that, he just looked at me and said, "That's perfect." Mm. I'm like, "Wow, that's amazing!" Wow. And so we wow. played a couple more songs, and I'm playing every you know all the parts note for note. And then he just looked at me and said, "Look," he goes, "I can tell you, you you definitely did your homework, and you know all this. Mm. So just now you play the way you would play all of this. Wow. So you gave me pretty much full, just create, yeah, creative." 
um, you know, musically creative um, you know, areas for me just to do my own thing. Yeah, and uh, and it was so much fun. Mm. Uh, we only it was only one tour that he that he was touring with this album, and it, it was such a good time. Um, I learned so much from him, and and just and and to this day, sometimes he'll still come back to Nashville, and he's hired me as his session leader, and I'll pull uh. everybody in, and and um, you know we do some recording and. It's just so great. It's Fantastic. Such a great guy, and still at his age, he's just—he's a great entertainer, great singer. You know, he still—he still has it. Episode four twelve, the last one of two thousand twenty-one. Wow! Listen to this episode description that you'll see when you go back to listen to this one. The guest was Fred Mollen, and it says a record producer, film and TV composer, songwriter, arranger, musical director, and band leader. He first came into international prominence as a record producer in the late 70s, producing numerous albums and singles, including the Grammy-nominated Sometimes When We Touch by Dan Hill. He also worked on two Grammy-nominated Johnny Mathis albums. Growing a reputation as a duet producer, he has spent the past five years producing duets with artists such as Billy Joel, Willie Nelson, Vince Gill, Natalie Cole, Gloria Estefan, and more. As an artist, he released a 15-song album this past March, and his top five songs on Spotify have a combined 22 million streams. His projects include Disney's Lullaby album, which went gold, and more than 30 album projects for Disney over the last 20 years. He had been vice president of A&R for Walt Disney Records in 2007 and 2008. So, one of the many topics we covered during our conversation was about a lot of what Fred did with Disney. Around 1998, I got a phone call from Jay Landers, who had been an old pal of mine, who was a tremendous supporter of my music. And at that point, he was at Walt Disney Records in Burbank, and he was running the uh, A&R division of the table. And he was involved in all sorts of music for young children, for teenagers, for you know what they call tweens. And he had an idea to do an instrumental lullaby album um, of mostly Disney songs, but done instrumentally, but done as lullabies. So very, 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 you know, just, you know, if you don't wake the baby, the arrangements have to be very, very beautiful, almost Mm. tranquil, you know. And so we did this first album called Disney's Lullaby Album. And uh, I'm proud to say it went gold and then some. And it it begat another four or five albums for Disney of lullaby instrumental music that I did. And I'm extremely proud of them. And they have put a lot of children to nice sound sleeps every night. And I feel very good about that. But then I started to get other projects through Jay. And interestingly enough, I did a bunch of work for him. Uh, all different things, you know, sort of auxiliary music for uh, for records for that were tied to things like uh, Pixar's Cars or uh, Ratatouille or um, Finding Nemo, etc., mm-hmm. and you know, all sorts of other projects that we came up with. And then he actually left for Sony, and I said to him, "Hey, do you think I could?" take your job <laughs> I, I know i know the world of kids you know i know the world of kids music well now and i know also you know all the people there and i feel like i'm old enough that i could definitely run the a and r for that label uh. and he gave me a wonderful reference you know to the boss and 
after a few meetings, I, I actually wound up for a year and a half uh, running the label uh, Jay did, and it was a tremendous challenge, and uh, I learned a ton and was overseeing probably, I think, 150 albums in that first year. Wow. And it was a fantastic experience. But again, you know, these things come to an end. I don't think I was the corporate type, but um, I continued to still work for them as a freelance producer. And, you know, I, my, my years working for Disney, both freelance and that time I was in the actual, you know, the world of Disney and had my own office in Burbank and had my own company car and all that stuff. It was really an exciting time. I think I was a little nervous, and I know I was definitely doing the male version of fangirling on episode 419 when I got the opportunity to interview Bill Champlin, the multi-Grammy award-winning singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist who spent 28 years as a member of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band Chicago. And of course, as exciting as it is to hear him talk about all his years with them, he has lots of other stories too, including a song he did that was made popular by someone who has always been a favorite of mine. I kind of like to make albums uh, with, you know, as though they were, you know, you got 10 songs, you got 10 different artists. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and most, most A&R guys at record companies would say, no, 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 that's not the way to go. <laughs> but, but, you know, we want you to play, we want you to write the same song 12 times and put it on the record. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's less, it's, it's more marketable if, if you're really in, in that little slot, you know, if you, make, you select a slot and you get in it. But, but uh, I, I stopped worrying about marketing a good long time ago. I mean, it, it's it's it only ends up getting written and done by me if if it excites me. If it, if, it, if I go, wow, this I like hearing this back, you know. So I mean, once again, self indulgent, selfish guy. <laughs> that's the way I sing. That's the way I write. That's the way I play. I play it the way I want to hear it. And, and you know, if people don't like it, well, then there you have it. No, there's plenty of other music. Yep. There's all kinds yep. of music out there. Yeah, I really kind of do my own thing for myself almost every song i've ever written to try to get a single rarely has become a single the only one that that i can remember that was really an assignment was uh was jay graden and steve lukather had a had a piece of music that needed it that needed it and they were they were writing for george benson mm. so i got into it and did you know some of the melodies and all of the lyrics on the song and it turned out to be a grammy award-winning song it's one of the rare assignment writings that i've that i've done that that actually worked for me i know that song would turn your love around which was a really big hit for george Two weeks later, it was another guest with a long-storied career in music, episode 421, Mark Herndon, a country music hall of fame drummer who performed with the legendary group Alabama for nearly three decades. And wow, did he give us some real insight into life on the road. Back in the day when we were playing over 300 dates a year, hmm. I had I had to be in good shape, uh, and it, it, the show grew in length. Eventually, we went from opening act to co-headliner to headliner, and you know, finally, in the later years, we we closed off with the American Farewell Tour. That was a three and a half sh hour show every night, wow. and even though it was kind of the waning years of touring for the band, I was in the best shape I ever was because. During the day, I kept a 12-speed road bike on the bus, and uh, I'd go get it in the morning and 
and go out exploring in these towns that we would go to uh, all year long. I, I rode thousands of miles all over uh, Canada and, and, and North America and, and the U.S. Hmm. Uh, virtually every city, every county, I could get out and, and look around. I, I loved it. And uh, I even rode um, in a couple of instances when we were close by, less than a hundred miles to the next show or so I'd, I'd ride the bike Wow! and um this yeah it was fun uh great way to unwind great way to take your mind off of what you're doing for a few hours which is very important when you're touring uh just to kind of have some decompression time be by yourself uh because on a tour you are very much in everybody else's space and they're in yours and uh you have to find ways to get along mm. it's mandatory uh and that's yeah, that means giving as much as uh getting you have to it's very much like a marriage you have to work and um you know you're out on the road with 50 or 60 people on the crew or even if you're playing in a uh, a band that's doing just clubs and stuff. You still have a band and probably one or two people helping you in a van. Uh, you know, it takes a little bit of skill to get along after a while. You have to learn. In my case, I just have to learn how to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> and that, that took that, that took about 20 years. <laughs> but, but, it, but it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, I had a uh, exercise right We. We, um, we we rode bikes. There was a couple of guys on the crew that would ride with me when they had time. Okay. And, uh, you know, if the weather's bad or something, we couldn't ride bikes, we'd, uh, we'd always hit the gym. On episode 422, something took place that marked just the second time in the history of NHTE that this occurred, meaning we actually had to spread the interview out over two weeks, a part one and a part two. The guest was Ken Stacy a vocalist, songwriter, guitar player, producer, vocal arranger, artist, mentor, and vocal coach. He was the lead vocalist and acoustic guitarist from 2006 to 2008 and 2013 to 2020 for five-time Grammy-nominated pop supergroup Ambrosia. He has been a member of the Elton John Band and the Michael Jackson This Is It Band. He also worked as a vocal and performance coach, vocal arranger, slash producer, and first-line judge, on seasons 10 and 11 of American Idol, I ended up calling my interview with him a masterclass, meaning all the gold that he provided. Anyhow, go back and listen to all these episodes that I'm playing clips from on this Best Of episode. But in Ken's case, listen to part one of the interview to hear him talk about, among other things, being in Elton John's band, and listen to part two so you can hear, among other cool conversation, him telling this story about when he worked on American Idol and a name you all certainly know. In season 10, my first season, I and one of the other line producers, they, they would partner the vocal coaches up with the line producers. And she and I ended up having Scotty McCreary come in front of us. Ah. Out of the myriads of thousands of kids that were wherever we were auditioning that day. 
And he comes up and we look at him and he looks, you know, he's this tall drink of water and he looks like a, a you know, baseball player and he doesn't, and he's got this kind of big baritone voice, which, <laughs> you know, he had a lot, he had some natural talent, but he hadn't fully developed it yet. He's not the Scotty McCreary everybody knows today. Mm-hmm. But we looked at him and we saw something and we thought this is really fascinating. And mm. yes, let's, we, we put him through. Mm-hmm. N- knowing, uh, I can tell you, I didn't. I did not think for a minute this was going to be that season's winner. Hmm. But let me tell you about Scotty. In the beginning of the season, they do all that stuff where they pair all the kids up and they make them have to choose their own partners in, in groups of three and all this stuff. And they do that for a reason. They want conflict. They want human beings to act like human beings. And trust hmm. me, you put a bunch of would-be, you know, <laughs> you know, wannabe stars singing stars together, uh, and some shit's going to go down. And so he and a couple of other guys put together a group, and there was this other kid. They had a very sweet kid. I can't remember his name. Name had a very nice voice, but you know, it was a little, you know, a little larger in frame and and didn't look all rock and roll. And they didn't want him in his group. And it destroyed him. Hmm. And when Scotty saw the impact that it had on this kid, he cried. Wow. But I've always told people those were not tears. Those were not crocodile tears. I know Scotty. I'd had a chance to meet him and get to know his family. And I worked a lot with him over the course of that season, especially in the beginning. And I got to know his mom and his dad. They are such beautiful human beings. And they have... There's, they were such good uh, stewards for him because he was a minor, mm. um, one of the youngest people I've on the show. So mom was always there. And they had instilled some really strong values in him. But you put anybody under that circumstance, and you're not always going to act, act from your best self. Sure. But when he saw his behavior and saw the way it impacted this kid, he had a breakdown in front of the camera and it was so genuine and so real and so honest that people saw that honesty that created goodwill for him. That Mm. was the beginning of Scotty building his audience. Mm. Now, as the show continued to go on, Scotty was the most teachable. He regrouped himself, realized, listen, I got to stay true to me. I got, I'm not going to go down that path anymore. I'm not going to become that person. Mm-hmm. And when the producers would tell him, we want you to sing this kind of song, he'd say, no. Wow. He'd say, no, I won't. He, this song does not go with my values. Mm. It's not who I see myself as an artist. I won't do it. He had the courage to do that. He could have been, he could have been voted off. He could have been, you know, there could have been a variety of reasons why he didn't make it. He could have been a puppet. He could have been yeah. a puppet. Yeah. But he stayed true to who he was. He listened to what I and the other coaches had to say. He listened to the direction. He got, He kept every single week. He got better and better and better. And when other contestants were peeking out, he wasn't. And because he had built that connection with the audience, every time he performed, he looked right into that camera. He performed from an authentic place. Mm. He didn't try to be anything he wasn't. He was true to himself. You could feel his authenticity. He was vulnerable. Oh, my God. Well, he ended up winning. And he was not the best singer on that show. <laughs> the best singer on that show got got voted off about week five. Mm. So, you know, lesson learned 
Fast forward ahead to NHTE 428 when I talked with Chris Polonis, who has performed or worked with everyone from actor and recording artist Jeff Bridges to Disney to Third Eye Blind, Michael McDonald, Jackson Brown, and more. Oh, and he also talked about the late Taylor Hawkins a good deal. Anyhow, wow, while you will hear him say that he's all over the place, in one answer to one question, he pretty much gave his connection to most of those artists I just mentioned. You know, with Michael, I met him at a time when I was, you know, I was a young producer, artist, working as a as a staff producer for a studio where he was recording his wife, Amy, uh, Amy Holland McDonald, her second album. Her first was a Grammy-nominated record. And we were just happened to be in the same studio at the same time. I was a huge fan of his, but I was doing a punk rock thing. I had a punk rock band called the Stocking Heads. We put, put stockings on our heads. It was, it was high energy stuff. It was fun, you know, but... And Mike, Mike was, above all things, he was like, I really like that song, Lose Control, you know, because he could hear it, you know, when the doors would open. So we just kind of became friends first. And, um, you know, I we both had places in Santa Barbara and we'd hang out and he was learning how to surf. He surfs pretty, you know, quite a lot now. But back then he was really just getting going. And I was always a surfer my whole life. So and then he he kind of called. um I can't remember if maybe he he might have hired me before we really started hanging out. He hired me to do some stuff on a some synth programming stuff on his second solo album. Um, so I guess maybe to tell you the truth, you know, we kind of got to know each other in the studio, but we really got to know each other maybe from me doing that with him on his record. And then we started hanging out and we didn't do anything together musically for a very long time until um he helped me he got involved with the first jeff bridges record you know i uh, that was a funny story he came into town he was living in nashville and he calls we love to go to this place called rose cafe and you know we were catching up what are you doing so i'm working on this thing you know i was actually kind of going to call you because i'd love you to play keyboards for me on this jeff bridges record i'm working on he goes oh the actor i go yeah he goes Okay, man, I don't know if I have time. I'd love to hear it, though. Well, I took him up to hear what I was doing. He really got excited. He ended up co-producing it. And then we, I'm going all over the place, sorry. But we formed a record company called Ramp Records. And uh, that was the next time that I worked with Michael was on Jeff's record. And then I, I produced one song on the Blue Obsession record that we released there, called, which was a Neil Young cover, Down by the River. So for many, many years, we just were friends. You know, we never really work together and uh and then you know we toured a little bit with him and jeff and i did to support those two records and then he and i didn't work together again until about six years ago when we started the project which is this album which is the whole album is really exciting i have to tell you um so that yeah i mean it was kind of work friendship uh crosby that's really been more just a friend. I met him, I think, at Jeff Bridges' anniversary party or something. And we just really have a lot in common. And he's awesome. You know, he's funny. Really funny guy. He's quite bright. Obviously super talented. Um, and Jackson, you know, Jackson, that's more of a friend thing, too. We haven't really done a whole lot of work together other than 
you know, I do have a cover of his song on this uh, on this Michael McDonald record. That there's a Jackson. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it as a surprise, maybe. But there's a Jackson Brown song on the new Michael McDonald album that'll ultimately get released, I'm sure. And it's quite something. Um, I mean, I you know I've been on stage with those guys. You know, like I've played. I've been on stage with Jackson and Crosby and, uh, you know, Mike and I have done some things together, just the two of us and, you know, um, not a whole lot, but probably they're more, I think they're more my friends than they are my workmates. I was back on location again when it came time to record episode 430 I sat down in Las Vegas with Lisa McClowry, who at the time was performing on The Strip six nights a week in the role of music icon Cher and was to be doing so the next month in Australia. You'll have to go and listen to this interview if you never heard it because she does do her Cher voice, which is spot on. But in this clip, she was telling me and the audience about the Cher tribute show itself. Our show is set up very much like a Broadway production or even a, a, a Las Vegas production where it's very specific because we play different casinos and, and things like that where you ah. have to be exactly 90 minutes. You cannot oh, go over. And and what's what's also great about our show is it's it's synced to video. Ah. So the, there are def- very specific video moments that are happening. Um, for instance, when I do one of my eight costume changes – the guitarist Michael Quino will come up uh, center stage and do part of a, a great solo. But on the screen, you're also going to hear me as, as a voiceover as Cher telling the story of Cher's life, and you will see some images of Cher. So it's educational. Um, it, it, you do feel like you're, you're walking through the life of Cher from her perspective. I can't get over that. You just said that you do eight costume changes, and the show is 90 minutes. Yes. I mean, that's... Exhausting. (laughs) The the costume changes are 90 seconds long. Episode 432 featured Jamie O'Neill, a platinum-selling singer-songwriter who is a four-time Grammy nominee and an Academy of Country Music and Billboard Awards winner. She has appeared on The Tonight Show, David Letterman, and numerous other national TV shows. This is a very short but a very powerful clip because she draws from all her success, all her experience, to pass along some really great advice to aspiring performers. I think an artist has to know who they are. And if they love it and they feel strongly enough about it, I think they should stick to their guns because if you're the kind of person that waffles all the time or doesn't know who you are as an artist, then you need to figure that out before you try to do anything and really like, you know, get a record deal or walk into someone's office and perform. I think you kind of need to know what lane you're in and what your message is and who, like, who are your fans? You know, like if you were to describe your fans, tell me who they are, you know, know who your, your target audience is. Who are you, who are you talking to when you say what you're saying? Cause I think Taylor Swift, again, I bring her up all the time. I think she's always known exactly who she's talking to. And I think a lot of artists don't. Two weeks later on episode 434, Blue Foley called in from Nashville. He is a two-time Grammy nominee in addition to having been nominated for a Dove Award for Song of the Year. He also has an Academy of Country Music nomination and two CMA nominations. 
We covered a lot on that episode, and in this clip, it was Blue talking about the song that ended up as a Song of the Year nominee for a Dove Award. In my case, all of my major label cuts have been through my personal relationships. But I will say, but I will say, um, I have never really gotten into the machine that is Nashville. And what I mean by that, that it, that is not a slight. I've never had a big writing deal with Sony or Warner or the big major label record companies that also have publishing companies, you know, because Sony has a publishing side, Warner has a publishing side, which can obviously be very, very helpful. But on that independent side, it's a different kind of a world, if you will. And truthfully, um, the, it's been through my personal relationships with artists or producers or writers, you know, in the case of the Dub Award, I wrote that song with Randall, my dear friend who had passed, and it was actually his hook, his idea. Um, it was a song titled, or is a song titled, God's Will, and he had this beautiful spin on it. Everybody knows God's will, you know, God's will be done, but he spun it to where if anything's going to da 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 do it this way, God will as in God will do all the things for you. So not only if it is his intention, he will do all these things for you. And so we had this really cool spin on the song. Well, I had lucked out and gotten a writing appointment with Jeff Sylvie. Jeff Sylvie's had George Strait cuts and uh, wrote, I believe still writes for Louis Bueno. I think the names changed to uh, Melody, or I can't remember. But anyway, at that time, he was producing an artist, Callie Rose. And sure enough, we write this song and it's got that kind of that really a Christian foundation behind it. And he, Jeff Sylvie, pitched it to Callie. And the next thing you know, it's up for song of the year for a double award. So that was 2015. But how songs get to their paths and how they end up in the places that they go, man, all, all I do is try to write the best song. And then you, you birth that baby, you put a bow on its forehead, you kiss it and you send it out into the world. I was back on the road again for what would end up being episode 439. Specifically, I sat down with Ada Pasternak at the NAM show in Anaheim, California. She had appeared on Hit Parader's unsigned band competition show, No Cover, and sang on a song that was used in a Netflix movie. In fact, and this is quite timely, this past Friday night, my wife and I were watching the movie Love Hard, and we had the closed captioning on because we were eating popcorn, and lo and behold, across the bottom of the screen, it suddenly says, Every Day by Otta Pasternak playing. And then a minute or two later, after the dialogue and during a scene change, the closed captioning said, Every Day by Otta Pasternak continues. So cool. Anyhow, since I'm always trying to provide potential teaching moments to the audience during our interview, I asked Ada how she'd gotten to be on the show No Cover. How I got the opportunity was pretty funny and random. Um, so, you know, Clubhouse, the app that everybody mm -hmm. was on d during the pandemic. I was on it for like two weeks um, and then I forgot about it. <laughs> so during that time, I, I went into some group. They were talking about something. I don't remember, but I found myself in this group. And I think they were talking about music or something like that. And um, when it was my time to say hello, it said in my bio, like musician and stuff. Mm. So 
um, the host of the group was like, do you want to sing a song for us? I was like, yeah, of course. And so I sang, I don't know what song I sang, to be honest. I sang one of my songs, and, um, and they really enjoyed it. And then I got an Instagram message from someone, and he's like, hey, I'm the producer of this TV show that we're going to be working on soon. We'd love to have you as one of the contestants. And, um, and he said, I heard you on Clubhouse? Yeah. Wow. Yep. That's what happened. And he's like, you're really talented. Like, let's talk. And we got in a call and yeah, I ended up doing the show. While I was out there in California, I didn't only interview Ada Pasternak. On episode 440, my guest was Julian Karens, who sat with me at the NAM show and talked about having overcome two near-death experiences. He has been seen on Fox, NBC, ABC, and The CW, and had a song chart on the top 20 in the rock category, number 14 specifically. As amazing as his voice is, an eight-octave range with the ability to hold notes for over a minute. We did also talk about songwriting, and here's what he told me on that topic. I still write by myself today, um, and uh, the only time I've ever written collaboratively was with uh, my music manager's daughter and with a Broadway playwright and a Disney composer, Mark Schoenfeld, who we wrote a song recently, um, specifically for the purpose of being like, you know, licensed for films and TV and that kind of thing, and to shop around to his his label friends. Uh, but yeah, it's always like a process that I just go through by myself. It's like a like I said, it's like a stream of consciousness thing. I, my brain sees music as like a puzzle and like shapes and like colors. Like, um, it's kind of like a synesthete thing where the, like you see it in like specific colors and shapes, and you don't really, I don't really see it in like sounds or he- hear it in sounds. It's like just like pieces that fit together, and my brain makes sense of the information in like a couple minutes. And this is this the with the song that I wrote for Mark. He was like, "Be naked, do it now, just right now, like be you know be raw." And I wrote a whole song like start to finish in front of him like in like three minutes, and yeah, like just letting your hands go, letting your voice go, and trusting yourself and your instincts of where to place. And even like lyrically, I had to improvise lyrics and stuff. And then we kind of chopped away until we got to the to the statue and the marble. Before I left the West Coast, I had the honor of being invited up to the home studio of Carl Verheyen, who has been called one of the top ten guitar players in the world by Guitar Magazine. He became a member of the British rock group Supertramp in 1985, and on NHTE episode 442, I asked him how he got that gig. Well, I I went to do a session that morning for uh, this particular morning for a female vocalist, don't even remember her name, and I'd never been to that studio. So the engineer was a British guy, and we got along great. You know, he liked my sounds, and I liked him, and we exchanged numbers. And um, didn't think much of it, but that night, around 9.30 at night, I get a call from uh, Supertramp's front-of-house engineer, mixer engineer, named Norman Hall. But he said, hello, Carl, this is Norman Hall. And uh, he, he said they're auditioning. They've heard 18 guys. Would I like to come down and audition tomorrow mm. morning Wow! At, at 10? You know, I said, sure. You know, and I really wasn't a fan. As a matter of fact, I, I didn't like some of the music so much. I, I wasn't a big fan of Roger's voice, but I am now. <laughs> I really got to love it later. But uh, so I went down there and I had to, the first thing I did, 
was apologize. I said, guys, I got the call late last night. I didn't have any time to learn any of your songs. And they said, we don't want to play any of our bloody music. Let's play the blues. So we played the blues. They nice. recorded it. And I got a call that night saying I'd, got, I'd gotten it. Wow. And, wow. Uh, but what was kind of interesting was, I shouldn't say his name, I'll just tell you, as I was walking in to do the, the audition, one of my favorite guitar heroes was walking out. I go, oh, what am I wasting my time for? He's going to get it. He's a famous guy. So I won't tell you his name. Yeah. He didn't yeah. get it. <laughs> Let's jump ahead to the halfway point of the last 100 episodes of Now Hear This Entertainment, meaning episode 450, when my guest was Jeff Middleton, who was one of the writers on the 2018 Jason Aldean song featuring Miranda Lambert called Drowns the Whiskey, which spent multiple weeks at number one on country radio, was nominated for CMA Song of the Year, and sales-wise was certified multi-platinum. He had his own band, too, which was signed to Warner Music Nashville and toured for over five years. You'll hear him start to allude to that at the end of this clip, but he told a really interesting story about the way things unfolded for him in the music business in Nashville. Here's the irony of the whole thing. Me coming to Nashville to get a staff songwriter position in terms of the order in which I got contracts, the staff songwriter position was literally the last one I ever signed. I had a record deal at a major record label before I ever had a publishing deal. Mm. So, yeah. So basically I was, I was an unsigned songwriter, um, kicking around Nashville, going, doing the same thing that I was doing. Um, but what happened was I ended up making more connections because of my guitar playing. Mm. So I had some people who, a buddy of mine who I wrote with, he asked me, he didn't play guitar and he asked me to come play with, uh, with him, play for him. Cause he was playing for a producer. He was a great singer, uh, a guy named Matt Caldwell, who's from Texas. And he, he was a great, he is a great singer. And, um, he wasn't playing guitar at the time. So he was like, Hey, can you play? Can you come play for me? I'll pay you 50 bucks. And I was like, heck yeah, I, I'm going to get paid in the music industry. So we went, I played, uh, you know, a few songs for him. He had his meeting with his producer and the producer actually asked me afterwards and was like, Hey, do you, uh, do you play guitar for people? And I was mm. like, well, as of today, as of today I do. <laughs> And he, I do know. So he connected me. Yeah, exactly. It was like, as a matter of fact, I do. Um, My business so cards actually, are at the printer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'm going to go make them. Um, but he connected me with an artist who was uh, had a record deal at the time. Uh, never had anything come out, but I played for her for a bunch. That gig actually led to two different gigs. Mm -hmm. One was with an artist uh, named Shelly Wright who uh, had some hits back in the 90s, a fantastic country artist and songwriter. But I was able to do some really cool things with her. I went to Kuwait and played mm. uh, in Kuwait and Iraq and did a military tour you wow. know, during that period of time. The first time I ever played at the Grand Ole Opry, she was the one who brought me up there into mm. the circle. And so that was a really cool piece of my career. And at the same time I was playing for her, I met with I met as writing partners two brothers from Oklahoma who were doing a duo the Fleener brothers Matt and Ryan Fleener so that turned into the band two weeks later on episode 452 Las Vegas headliner Frankie Shinta was back on the show 
after first having been on way, way back on episode 35, so the first year of Now Hear This Entertainment. As I do with all my guests, Frankie and I covered a lot of ground, including me asking him about the decision he made to carry on and keep performing after his bandmate, his brother Joe, passed away, rather than Frankie thinking about hanging it up. Well, I'll tell you, the night, the day my brother Joe passed away, I was on stage rehearsing with my big band and waiting for Joe to get there. I'm sorry, waiting, that was the first time he had a stroke. I'm sorry. Uh, The night, Joe was already in hospice. And we had been performing a few shows without him. Mm. Uh, At about 6 p.m., the president of the casino walks up to the stage and says, Frankie, I just heard about your brother. With while he was speaking to me, my phone rang and it was Joe's wife telling me that Joe had passed. Mm. So he says, listen, you don't have to do a show tonight. I said, how many people are coming? He said, well, we got about 400. Mm. Uh, it's a good room. I said, then we're doing a show. Wow. He goes, are you serious? I said, yes, I will perform tonight. Mm. And I did. And at the very end of the show, I looked out at the audience. And this still hurts a little bit. <clears throat> and I said, folks, if I wasn't quite as funny as I always am, it's because today I lost my brother. Mm. And this was at the end of the show. And the, the mood of the audience changed rapidly. And they gave me probably one of the greatest innovations I ever had. Mm-hmm. And the reason I did that is because Joe and I and my sister, we always said, no matter what happens, we are going to perform. That's why we were put on this earth. Mm. And I did that night, and I'm glad I did. And you know where I got that from? It, it hit me a long time ago. I was a little boy, and Red Skelton, I don't know if you're old enough, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, I remember Red him. Red Skelton had, had his own TV, right. He had done his whole show, and at the end of the show, he apologized to the audience about the same way I did. Mm. And he said... I apologize, but today I lost my son. Oh, gosh. And I can't even imagine a father (sighs) losing a son. I mean, I want to be gone way before any of my children or grandchildren. I'm ready to go right now. Just don't take time. So that is a little boy hit me hard. And I said, oh, my God, that guy just did an entire show. And we never knew it till the very end. Yeah. And that stuck with me my most of my life, which is up until now. Mm. So that night I performed. For the episode that came out one week later, I was in the Florida Panhandle at the Pensacola Beach Songwriters Festival, where I had the pleasure of sitting down with Ann Buckle, who is a regular performer at the famed Bluebird Cafe in Nashville and has shared the stage with the late Charlie Daniels, opened for the Chicks, and performed on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry. Plus, during our conversation on episode 453, she shared this about her connection, I guess I should say her relation, to a well, well well-known music family. 
I grew up a part of the Carter family, um, which was originally A.P. Carter and Maybell and Sarah Carter, and they were known as one of the first families of country music in the 1920s and 30s. They came out of that little town, Hilton's, Virginia. And my connection to them is that A.P. Carter's brother uh, was a guy named Jim Carter, and he's my great-grandfather. So A.P. Carter was a great uncle of mine, and Maybell and Sarah by marriage. And um, Maybell, there was a little bit of like cousins, uh, married cousins. <laughs> um, so Maybell ended up er- marrying another brother of Jim and AP's Ezra Carter. So by her dad, I'm also a cousin of June Carter cash. And when I was young, I was lucky enough to know her and Johnny cash. And I got to even play violin for them when I was like 10 years old. Wow. <laughs> uh, there's a really funny picture of, I, I was taking classical music lessons at the time and we we're on the front porch of their home in Hilton's Virginia. And Johnny Cash is holding my Suzuki music book music for me as I play them like my latest piece I'm working on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a really humbling moment. <laughs> While I was at the Pensacola beach songwriters festival, I also got to interview Caitlin Evanson for episode 456. She has traveled the world playing violin and guitar and singing background vocals behind multi-Grammy-winning superstar Taylor Swift. More recently, she has been posting a lot about working with Kelsey Ballerini. She also plays mandolin and has also toured and recorded with Ringo Starr, and at the time of our interview had recently come off the road from having been out with the Rolling Stones. I'm sure she gets tired of telling the story, but knowing that the audience would absolutely want me to ask, I quizzed her about how she got the gig playing with Taylor Swift. I was playing for some lovely people, a couple of um, American Idol runner-ups, Bucky Covington, he was fantastic. Um, And we were sound checking uh, at an event where we were opening for this little blonde girl named Taylor Swift, and Taylor Swift was opening for Dirks Bentley. So she was, she had just turned 18, I think, um, at that time. So while we were sound checking at this big venue, I saw this little blonde girl in the audience watching the sound check. And I'm such a ham. I thought, well, there's somebody out there watching. We should do another song. And, you know, I I am. I'm a wacky, weird ham who does voiceovers and everything else. It's just going to be who I am in life. It's too late to change. Uh, so she was sitting there in the audience, and I thought, let's do a Better Than Ezra song. I'm a fan of every style of all styles, and I love Better Than Ezra. So uh, we did good, the song good, and I was singing, and... And she seemed to really like it. And uh, I didn't know what a musical encyclopedia she ended up being either. But Mm. that's, again, another story for later. Uh, But after the soundtrack, I walked down the stage uh, off the side steps. And she just kind of cut me off at the pass and got up and put her hand out and said, You are awesome. Um, I'm Taylor. And I said, Well, thanks. Nice to meet you. So disarming. So just sweet and charming and kind and met her mom, Andrea, and we just immediately hit it off in conversation. And little did I know that later that night, they also watched the show uh, of the band I was in. And I also didn't know that they were looking to hire a fiddle player, background vocalist at all. Um, I just was having fun and doing my thing. And truly, I don't know if, if I knew I was auditioning. It wouldn't have gone the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, my nerves, my tunnel vision, my freak out. It wouldn't have been my best performance. Uh, I wouldn't have been as present or in the moment. I was just having fun. I didn't know she was out there watching. Plus, I didn't really even know who she was. Yeah. 
Um, but they approached me, her manager approached me after the show and just said, Hey, uh, what's your number? And we'll call you in. And Bruce, when I tell you, I have never known who is going to make it and who's not. And I've been wrong 90% of the time and it's very humbling. (laughs) But when they called to offer me the gig, I almost didn't take it. Because I thought, well, I don't know if this little girl's going to do anything. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And it was, this has been, her career has been one of my biggest lessons, which is it's not about the rhinestones or even the vocal acrobatics. It's about the songs. Mm. And she is a songwriter first and foremost, and her performance skills and her voice eventually caught up to how prolific her songwriting really was. Let's jump way ahead to episode 473 and Danny Serafin, who, you know, just happens to be a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Grammy Award winner, and the original drummer and co-founder of the legendary band Chicago. And boy, did he have a great story to tell about their classic song, Make Me Smile. In those days, we were signed to Columbia Records, and, you know, they were, we had these long songs. Most of our songs were five, six, seven minutes, you know. And in those days, to get on the radio, it had to be three, three and a half, nine, you know, no more than three and a half minutes. Uh-huh. So Clive Davis uh, came up with the idea of editing. Uh, you know, it was a brilliant idea, really. He ended at the beginning of the ballet to the end, and that created Make Me Smile, mm. the song Make Me Smile. And it was just magical. And so I'm driving, you know, this was before we really... I mean, we were kind of the darlings of FM radio, and I was still driving a Volkswagen Beetle with 150,000 miles on it, you know. <laughs> and I'm driving, I'm driving on the, on the San Diego freeway, and, you know, it's a tiny warm day in Southern Cal, nothing like it, right? And, and all of a sudden, I hear an AM radio, because uh, that, that, that car didn't have an FM radio. <laughs> I hear an AM radio, and here's the latest hit from Chicago, and I'm going, what? And I heard this song, and then... And it's the first time I had ever heard it spliced together. And I, I pulled over to a payphone. There weren't cell phones in those days. <laughs> and, and I called our manager, and I was swearing at him, saying nasty things to him. How could you let them do that to our music? And, you know, he's, he said, Danny. I said, what? He said, it's being played on 75% of all the AM radio stations in, in the country. And I said, oh, I said, I said, to him, I said, can I go buy a Mercedes tomorrow? And he said, yes, go buy. A... So I went and bought a Mercedes, and I've been driving them ever since. That's my Mercedes. It's it, it's really funny. Wow. Because you know, I changed my tune really. I changed my tune really quick. Wow. It really uh, made me smile. Opened the door. I mean, in one sense, we 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 went from being, you know, a band with these stretched out, long, you know, extravagant arrangements to starting to to make hit songs, you know, and it was the first hit for us. I was back in Las Vegas again for the interview that would end up being NHTE 475, talking on location with Tierney Allen, a singer, multi-instrumentalist, tribute artist, and more, who at the time had been portraying Lady Gaga for 13 years, seven of which she has performed for the world-renowned tribute show Legends in Concert. I should point out that she also does Amy Winehouse, and we talked about that a lot too. But what's important is to understand the depth of training, study, preparation, how much goes into being an impersonator. Although we shouldn't be surprised when you're talking about Las Vegas, the entertainment capital of the world. 
But here is Tierney Allen giving you just a glimpse into how much is involved, just in case there's anyone out there who says, oh yeah, I can do a pretty good Lady Gaga. I've studied with um, a dear friend named Kelly Vaughn, and she is the most incredible singer as herself, but also many artists, tribute artists, that she can do Dolly Parton, she can do Reba, she, and she transforms both vocal and, you know, visual. And so I studied with her uh, this last year, and she understands what it takes to take whatever this is happening in my anatomy and make it her, make it Gaga. And um, a lot of it was physical, that you know, you need to place it, feel it resonate in your cheeks. And, and when you need to, I'm off the deep end, like you, you need to crouch down and find your stance and ground yourself. Like things that I wouldn't have thought of. And she, she, she picked apart Lady Gaga's shallow performance. And she says, see how she's in a plie right there? That's because she's going for that belt note. Instead of reaching for it, she's going down with it. That's why she's down there. So then I, was, I thought it was just a choreography move. But no, there are some real um, choices that they make to get these nodes out. And so I do the same. Let's jump ahead a good bit to somewhat more recent times. Episode 489 in particular, and Adam Hood, a singer, songwriter, guitar player who has performed at the Grand Ole Opry and has had songs recorded by the likes of Miranda Lambert, Little Big Town, Kid Rock, Travis Tritt, Leanne Womack, and more. The one name in there I want to focus on here is Miranda Lambert and the cool story Adam told of how they came to meet. So <laughs> with Miranda, this is this is pretty serendipitous, but I was playing at a place called Tavern on the Green in New Braunfels, Texas. And uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard used to do a radio show there on Tuesday nights. Well... Miranda and her mother were on vacation in New Braunfels. That the, the Guadalupe and the Comal River, you know, they run through New Braunfels, and so everybody's always floating the river down there. So it's kind of a river town. But um, they were down there on vacation, and their car broke down. And so hmm. um, the, wow. the mechanic said, "Well, you know, I can fix this tomorrow." So they said, "Well, let's just go get a an Airbnb." I guess at the time, um, <laughs> or like just a, a, a hotel house. Yeah. And they walked, they, that's what they did. They, they found somewhere to stay and they walked over to Tavern on the Green wow. uh, to have a drink. And I was playing. Wow. And, um, and so, you know, she listened to my set. <sighs> I walked outside. She introduced herself to me. And t- a, a month later, I was playing a birthday party. Man. Two weeks later, wow, talk about a storyteller. My guest on episode 491 was singer, songwriter, multi instrumentalist Jeffrey Steele who has over 65 million airplays of his songs. He has gotten three Grammy nominations as a writer and as a musician and earned a Golden Globe nomination as well. My gosh, just go look at the description for that episode. The highlights go on and on. But anyhow, he told this hilarious and entertaining story about someone that he met twice. I was playing in a bar in California, and Chris Christopherson was playing there. Hmm in the bar. Wow. And, and I'm like, Oh my God, my dad's favorite. You know, I, and I, I love Chris. Cause I gotta, I gotta meet him. I gotta, I gotta ask him what to do. You know, I, gotta give him <laughs> advice. I don't know what to do with my life. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here playing all these club gigs, you know, trying to make 50 bucks here and 50 bucks there. And, and so Chris is in the back alley of the bar after the show, um, with two, with two girls on his arm <laughs> and a bottle of whiskey and he, and he's getting into a limousine. 
it is in a back alley, in a, in a back alley of the club in North Hollywood. So I really, I'm, you know, I said, Chris, you know, my name's Jeffrey Steele. You know, my dad, you know, my dad loves your mouth. I love your music. And man, well, can you tell, can you tell me anything? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? You know? And, and, and he looks at me and he, he was definitely, you know, he was, he was half cocked, you know, he was, he was pretty lit up. And, 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 and he looked at me and he's kind of looked at me with those kind of eyes rolling back and forth and he's kind of wobbling and, and the girls are kind of holding him up and he's like, son, never do it for the money. And then he gets into a limousine with two girls and a bottle of whiskey, like the classic, the classic movie scene, you know? Like, so 20 some years later, Bruce, 20 some years later, I was the songwriter of the year. And, you know, you go to the award show and they give you the big trophy, blah, blah. And, and, and that year, Chris Christopherson was being honored as the icon wow. of country music. Wow. At the same year. Wow. So, so we're on stage together. And so, I, the, you know, the first thing I said was, Chris, I'm Jeffrey Steele. He, he goes, I know. Congratulations. You know, I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I said, I met you back in 1980, blah, blah, whatever, that, whatever it was. I can't even remember. But I said, I, I saw you in that back alley. You remember? He goes, oh, kid, I don't remember anything from back then. <laughs> I, he, he, he looks at me, but he looks at me real serious. And he goes, what did I say? <laughs> I, said, you, I said, I said, you told me to never do it for the money. And he just started belly laughing. He's like, bah! he's just belly laughing. And then he gets really serious again. And he looks at me, looks at me right in the eye. He goes, he goes, did you do it for the money? I said, no, sir. <laughs> and then we all started laughing again. And, and, and that, that was the, that was the most of the advice I ever got. Uh -huh. in my music. We're in the home stretch here, and nine weeks ago, episode 492, two-time Grammy-nominated musician, composer, singer, songwriter, and producer Eric Alexandrakis was my guest. Wow. Another one with credits for days. I have to believe, though, that in 492 episodes of the show, he was the first one to ever not only bring up the name of actor John Malkovich, but be quite good friends with him. One of my good friends introduced me to his photographic, one of his photographic collaborators, Sandra Miller, who's like one of the top commercial directors, photographers in the world. He's out of Chicago. And because I had this idea about him, uh, John, reciting Plato's Allegory of the Cave of some like weird kind of ambient music. And he liked the idea. And then we all collaborated on a few films and a few vinyls and a bunch of projects and traveled together to a lot of things. And, you know, so it just blossomed and he's great. He's so both of them are great. They're both so brilliant. John is like the most thing dude. You know, he's usually with a list. You have to go through like four agents and, but like, you know, <laughs> we, uh, contact directly in contact directly we travel together we, we you know, eat together we were, we did record signings in london and chicago and la and where else and we did appearances at david lynch's festival of disruption and a lot of really interesting things we shortlisted a con was one of the films that we did which actually was the concept of my idea for it as well so he's awesome he's a great pleasure and really fun and really smart and very well read and super creative 
Episode 495 was recorded on location in Alabama. I was there the last week of July, so less than two months ago, and in this case got to talk with Bridget Tatum, who co-wrote Jason Aldean's hit, She's Country. That song, wow, listen to episode 495 to hear the cool story behind that. The most played song on country radio across the U.S. in 2009. Anyhow, what a journey for Bridget. She's from South Carolina, and as you'll hear, went from the stereotypical pat on the head of a youngster all the way up to living in Nashville and writing music with an A-lister. When I was 13, at about 14, 15, my grandmother on my dad's side of the family had gone to a yard sale, picked up two guitars, and I think I told y'all this was my first taste of the music industry and what that <laughs> looks like for females. She gave one to my cousin, gave one to me. She goes, he's going to be more serious about this, but hmm. you guys hear some guitars and y'all have fun. So it was a right-handed guitar, and I'm left-handed, very much a southpaw, and all I could do at that time was play on muted strings, which is why that's a lot of the pattern of how I play, which is that rhythmic thing that I do when people are asking me, what style is that? I'm like, I don't know. I just bang on a guitar. <laughs> um, but from there, figured out how to swap the strings around, and it was all by ear. I had a, a teacher that had mm. taught, me, taught me a couple songs, and from there, it was everything was by ear and just discovery on the instrument itself. And then after that, it became... Uh, performances festivals, which was kind of ironic. I just wrote with Trisha Yearwood, which was amazing, and got to tell her, I don't know how many times I've sung, she's in love with the boy. So studying those writers of that time and those voices got me more interested in being an artist. And then as well, churches carried on, tent revivals, things like that. Uh, but country music was my love. You know, I grew up with Hee Haw with my papa, and I grew up with eight tracks in his truck. Anybody, anywhere from uh, Buck Owens to Roger Miller, which I think is some of the most well-crafted songs that you could ever hear as far as if you're going to twist phrases. And then all of that kind of ran into the 90s. And once I got into the 90s with country music, I mean, I just became lifelong fan of that for the rest of my life. And even today, the kids that are coming through are like, man, the 90s seems, I said, yeah, that was the <laughs> best. And then right behind Bridget in the guest seat while I was at the third Lake Martin Songwriters Festival was William Michael Morgan on episode 496. His debut album back in 2016 had opened in the top five on Billboard's Country Albums chart and landed him on countless year-end best album lists, including Rolling Stone and iTunes. On that episode, I introduced him as having performed more than 50 times on the Grand Ole Opry only to have him correct me during the interview. Change that because it's now I think it's like seven or a little just like seventy two or seventy three. Wow. wow! And that's just over the past few years. You know, wow. we've played, we've played, we've played. Anytime they ask, we <laughs> make time <laughs> because, like you said, it is the Grand Ole yeah, Opry. Yeah, uh, and of course that's the Grand Ole Opry at Opryland and Ryman. Uh, the the original Opry downtown in Nashville mm -hmm. uh, combined. So, but man, it's a feeling like no other. It's it's spiritual, almost. I, I mean, somebody asked me today. I was playing at the at the uh, at one of the bars here. They asked me if I ever get nervous, and I said only at the Opry. Still, yeah, still only at the Opry. Wow. It's just knowing all the legends, the icons, the history. The people who've walked through those doors, down those halls, eating out of the same popcorn thing as I've yeah. been getting the same coffee and getting wow. the, doing the same thing, you know, stepping outside, 
enjoying the uh, scenery and, and just, you know, just taking it all in, taking all the rooms. Each room at the Opry, uh, dressing room at the Opry has different settings and different scenes, I guess. Like mm. there's the Porter Wagner room, which, of course, is all rhinestoned out. There's uh, Welcome to the Family Room, which I guess is when you get uh, brought into being a, you know, asked to be a family member of the Opry. They mm. put you in that room. Uh, there's the, uh, I call it the patriotic room. I'm not sure exactly what it's <laughs> called, but um, uh, they have like Daryl Worley, um, Montgomery Gentry, of course, uh, like some pictures of maybe like some soldiers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a bunch of rooms. Of course, little Jimmy Dickens has his room still uh, <laughs> over there that, you know, uh, some people can get in every now and then. I saw Ricky Skaggs in there uh, a, a few Opry performances back. And, uh, of course, you know, it's so awesome walking by each room, hearing these artists and performers running through what they're fixing to play out mm. on stage and hearing it raw and hearing and and, 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 and watching them just make that magic together right in just a dressing room gathered around each other, you know. So there you have it. And then, of course, the Milestone 500th episode last week with five-time Grammy nominee Kenny Wayne Shepard. Go back and listen to that. Go back and listen to episodes I included clips from in this episode. Go back and listen to episodes you missed over the last hundred that I did not include here on episode 501, The Best Of, Volume 5. In fact, on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net, I'm going to put links so you can go back and listen to Volume 4, Volume 3, Volume 2, and Volume 1. The interview for Episode 502 next week is already recorded, so there's certainly more ahead. Thank you again ever so much for listening, wherever in the world you are. I honestly cannot say enough how much it means to me that you make time to listen to this show. Tell a friend about it, hit the follow button on whatever platform you listen through, and yes, consider sending me a token of thanks through the yellow Buy Me a Coffee logo on the podcast website, nhte.net. This closing track that you're hearing, by the way, is Don Carr, who toured as the lead guitarist for the legendary Oak Ridge Boys for 23 years and was the guest on episode 415. That'll do it for episode 501. I'll talk to you again next week on another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment.